Ephesians chapter 6 is gonna, going to be our text this morning. This is our final sermon in this amazing letter of Ephesians. And uh, as we get in, why don't we, why don't we actually begin with prayer, asking God to expose his truth and his word to us. Father, we humbly come before you today. We humbly just read through and work through and study this, this text this morning, recognizing that we don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to pull out uh, and, and understand your truth, but we believe that your spirit can move through us this morning, can enliven our hearts and our minds, the places in our hearts where we are unable to touch, the places of uh, deep-seated sin and Darkness, where we're in need of a just absolute transformation and turning. God, we believe that you have the power to do that in our lives this morning. We believe that as we read these words and as we study them and as they're proclaimed and as the gospel is proclaimed, we believe that you can take our words and you can do something in our hearts. And so we ask that you do that this morning. God, give us wisdom. Let us see your truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Why is it that so many Christians who have experienced the life of the church, experienced the road of discipleship, they've walked some of that road. Men and women who have tasted, as it says in Hebrews, tasted and they've seen that it's good. They've seen that this fruit actually tastes really good. Like this is some good stuff here. And what I'm experiencing and what I'm seeing in worship is, is very good. They've tasted it. They've, they've been there. They've seen it. They've experienced it the goodness of the faith. And then they walk away. Men and women who slide unknowingly into a life of darkness and who, as it says in Hebrews, who, who drift. As a pastor, I sit on the front lines, sort of front row seating, if you would, to the war that wages all around us. Front row view of the warfare that we are part of as, as, as Christians. We, we, uh, we're, as we get into Ephesians 6 today, verses, starting in verse 10, it's all about spiritual warfare. And the crazy thing is this. When we start talking about demons, like crazy things uh, pop into your mind. We, I mean, our, we go all over the place, right? We think... As soon as we talk about demons, we either think like archaic and outdated, or we think eerie, freaky sort of doors slamming, walls pounding, crazy things happening, faucets turning on and off kind of weirdness, right? Some of you are like, I'm afraid of demons. I don't want to talk about demons. They scare me. Now here's... This is the reality of it, and this is, if we can hit anything today, and this is where we want to drive it home, it's right here, it's this. 
when we talk about spiritual warfare, when we talk about battling against the demonic powers that are around us, we're not talking about faucets turning on and off. We're not talking about doors being opened and closed and walls being pounded on. We're talking about lives that are being torn apart. We're talking about individuals who are continuing to fall into sin and they don't even realize it. We're talking about a callousness that we build toward sin. A love for the flesh over a love for the spirit. We're talking about individuals who forget the promises of God. We're talking about individuals who turn a blind eye regularly to the hurting that are right around them. We're talking about gossip. We're talking about slander. We're talking about bitterness. We're talking about cynicism. We're talking about a hatred of the law or a hatred for the things of God and a love for the things of this world or a love for the flesh. This is spiritual warfare. And that's where we're going today. That's where we're diving in. This isn't freaky, eerie, sort of ooh kind of stuff. It's actually scarier, much scarier than doors opening and closing and faucets turning on and off. It's a war for your souls. I heard someone say one time, the, why is it that so many fall away, especially pe new believers or people who have never really grown in their faith? Why is it that they drift? Why is it that they fall away? The answer was this. It's because they, without knowing it, are thrust into the middle of an age-old battle between good and evil, and they don't even realize it. All right? Now, let's think about this. Let's think medieval warfare. Let's think 300. Have you seen the movie? Imagine being plopped down in the middle of medieval warfare, and you are naked, and your eyes are closed, and you have no clue that there's a battle happening all around you. Swords, spears, those really crazy big heavy balls that they would swing back in medieval. Ugly stuff. And you have no clue what's happening. Now let me ask you this. If that was the case, and you were in smack dab in the middle of a battle, and you had no clue, and you were, you were naked, or wearing a t-shirt and shorts, if that's a better image. How long would you last? How long would you last? Not, the answer is not very long. <laughs> not very long, unless providence spared you. But you wouldn't last very long in this war, in this battle. And in the spiritual battle that is raging all around us, if we don't take heed to what we're what Paul is wrapping up with here in Ephesians 6, if we don't really listen and then grab it and put it on us, if we really don't take heed to this stuff, we are like a, someone who's in a t-shirt and shorts in the middle of a war and we don't even realize what's happening around us. And we will not last very long. We will not last as a church. You will not last individually as a believer. So let's listen, let's take heed. Uh, Ephesians has been this beautiful, if, if you're new this morning or if you just recently started joining with us, this is our 10th week in the letter of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Uh, what we have seen has, I think, just come out of the letter, has been this beautiful picture of the gospel. It's been a full-on, sort of full-view look at what the gospel actually is, the gospel of Christ and this beautiful gift that we've been given by the eternal Trinitarian God, the Father who chose us, the Son who bled for us, the Spirit who sealed us. I mean, this wonderful gospel. We've then experienced, or we've, we've looked at the experience of the gospel, how this works out in our life, and it's a little recap. You were dead, and God made you what? Alive. 
And then we saw how this gospel has united us then together as a church, Jew and Gentile, every background, every kind of person, coming together under one Father. And we come together and God has knit us together to be his body and we've seen the cosmic significance of the church as the spiritual world looks in on what we do. And then in chapters 5, we saw the new identity that Paul laid out for us. This is the new identity for the, or it's a new standard for the new identity, rather. This is now the way that we operate. It's the way that we act. It's the way that we think. We don't think like dead people anymore. We think like alive people. And then as it went on, we saw how, as we're filled with the Spirit, how this now changes the way that we look at our relationships with each other, how we submit to one another, how we operate within marriages and within families and within our jobs, how we operate with our bosses, with our employees. This has been the message of Ephesians, and it's, I think we could summarize it in one word, and that word is rich. Essentially, we've, what we've been hearing over and over and over in this book from Paul is that we are very, very rich. We are very blessed spiritually. In chapter 1, I just want to kind of skim through here. Chapter 1, he said, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing, verse 3. Verse 7, he said, your trespasses were forgiven according to the riches of his grace. And then verse 11, he said, you've then obtained an inheritance, which, by the way, is the inheritance of the creator of this world. Pretty nice inheritance. Amen? Verse 18, he says uh, he, that he wants us to know the riches of his glorious, of, of our glorious inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 4, we were dead, but God, though he, because he was rich in mercy, verse 8, he saved us so that he could show his immeasurable riches to the world so he could just show the world how much he has blessed us and how rich we are for by grace we are saved not by our own doing it's the gift of God and then in chapter 3 verse 8 Paul called Paul said he was called to preach to the Gentiles to show the unsearchable riches of his grace verse 16 according to the riches of his glory we are strengthened by the spirit and now in in these closing words he's he's wrapping up this letter to the Ephesians, and as he's wrapping it up, as he's sort of closing it out, he like brings us back down to earth one last time. He brings us in, you could say, back to sort of the reality uh, of, that, of which we are currently living, in which we are currently living. John Stott, the theologian, said this about these closing words of Ephesians. He says that as Paul brings us back down he is showing us realities which are harsher than words meaning like I could stand up here and talk for an hour about the harshness the, of, of the reality of this war that we are in and my words will in the end fail me I can't quite describe how harsh this war actually is So we are in the middle of we are in the middle of a war is how he ends it. And so let's let's get into it because guys, this as we have been going through Ephesians, this is one of the passages, this is sort of the text that I have been praying that God can use in our life and in our church. Because if we if we miss this if we just ignore it or we write it off as superstition or something weird, it, we will be destroyed. Look at verse 10. Let's, let's just start digging in, diving in. <clears throat> verse 10. Finally, he says, so finally, like, okay, one last exhortation here. This is, we're wrapping it up. Finally, one more thing. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So don't be strong now in your might. So he's, I mean, you guys got to understand this. Like, 
as we've just laid out the gospel and we laid out now the new standard and the way that we're supposed to be living, what he's saying is, is you know, don't, don't believe that you're just supposed to now be strong in and of yourself. Don't believe that essentially you have what it takes in and of yourself, in and of your own flesh. So don't be strong in yourself, but be strong in the Lord. Have strength in the power of, of His might. And then how do we find that strength? Where does that strength come from? Let's continue. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the power and the strength of His might. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. And so think back with me. Medieval warfare. If you're going to be standing in the middle of a battle, it would be good to have on some armor, right? I mean, this is element, this is like War 101. In the ancient world, as armor was very essential to fighting in a battle, it was primarily a defensive structure. What we're seeing here now is, as, as, as we look at the armor of God, as we look at what the, the sort of the strength that God gives us, it's not only an armor that is strong enough to defend us from the attacks of the evil one, but every piece of the armor that we're about to look at here is also a weapon used for war. Everything from the helmet all the way to the shoes have the power to slice up the enemy. And so we, w the strength that we have from God, this armor that we have from God is defensive as well as offensive to go on the attack against, against the enemy. So put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to, what's that word? This is where everybody's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not following along. Whoops, uh, where's he at? Stand so you may, may be able to Stand. Now, uh, again, let's go back to the war imagery. If you are in the middle of a war and you're on the ground, is that a good thing? Everybody's saying no. That's really bad. Like, if you're standing, it doesn't matter. You might have some cuts. You might have some bruises. But if you're still on your feet, you, still, you have a chance to win. If you're still standing. So, so standing is... Very important. I mean, even in today, like modern day fights, like boxing, dude gets knocked on the ground. What's everybody yelling? Stay on the ground. No. Get up. Right? Don't stay down. Get back up on your feet. If you're laying on the ground in the middle of a war, you're about to get trampled or stabbed. Something bad is about to happen to you. Get back up on your feet. And so we're going to see this, this idea of standing, staying rooted like on your feet. We're going to see this all throughout this text. He says stand three times. Stand, stand, stand. And then he says withstand one time. So with, withstand the attacks. So put on the armor, the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. That word schemes in the Greek is methodia. What word do you think we get from methodia? Methods. Methods. So stand firm. We're putting on this strength, this armor, these weapons, so that we may be able to stand against the methods, plural, schemes of the devil. Listen. The devil has multiple methods and schemes for every situation of your life. He has schemes for every situation of anyone's life, for every area that we live, for every neighborhood, for every city. He has schemes for East Baltimore. He has schemes for West Baltimore. He has schemes for D.C. He has schemes for those apathetic Christians who are just taking it easy. He also has schemes and methods for Christians who are attending church every Sunday to draw, to draw them down. He has schemes for married people, and he has schemes for single people. He has schemes for white people and black people and Hispanic people and Asian people. He has schemes for the middle class. He has schemes for 
the poor. He has schemes and methods for computer owners. He has methods for the bored. He has methods for the busy. And there's always new methods out there. The devil, Satan, our adversary, our enemy, is sort of like this ultimate strategist of evil. And as soon as you remove yourself from this scheme or this method, as soon as you sort of recognize what's happening here and how that's drawing you away from Christ, and you move away, there's a new method that is now at work and uh, attacking you. And some of us, in this moment right now, are very frustrated by this, amen? Because you just got past this problem, and now it's like there's a whole another thing that's sucking at you. You thought that was going to take care of it. You thought throwing your TV away was going to be the end of your sin problems in life. Satan has methods for people who throw their TVs away. Guys, listen, this is why behavioral modification in and of itself doesn't work. I had a friend who was living in Baltimore who was a, uh, addicted to drugs. And he believed that if he could just get out of the city, like move away from the city, that it would solve his problem. Because, you know, there's just so many opportunities around here for him to buy um, drugs. He moved to the suburbs, and you know what he found? The enemy has methods and schemes for drug addicts who move to the suburbs. Like we, I mean, we've got to understand the sort of the, the strategic mind of the captain of the dark forces. And as soon as you remove yourself from this environment or this problem and you think, now I'm not saying that you should never throw your TV away or or move, I mean, that can be part of the fight. But if we think that, that changing our environment in and of itself is going to change the darkness that's in here, we've got to understand that that's just that's, that's a problem. And there will be new methods of attack. We cannot just simply try to build through our actions a fortress around us to protect us from the devil. So how are we protected then from the enemy? And what exactly is the war that we are facing and that we are in? Paul describes it. Continue with me. Look at the war that we are in in verse 12. For we do not wrestle, he says, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces. Now, what is, what is he referring to? Who are these authorities, these powers, these rulers, these spiritual forces? Now, we know that they're not people. They're not the government. It's not, in this case, it's not, he's not referring to Caesar here. He's not referring to dictators. It seems to me that he's actually referring to whatever it is that's behind those dictators. The influence that's grabbing a hold of their minds and their hearts. Let's think for a moment about Adolf Hitler. One of the most terrible rulers, leaders, human leaders this world has ever seen. He's not actually here referring to Hitler. If we were in the 1930s and 40s right now, he would say Hitler is not actually your enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We are wrestling with the influences, with the forces that are influencing and using Adolf Hitler and others. And you. There is this whole, a whole other realm, a whole of spiritual forces, rulers, of spiritual dictators that are driving us. And he's not also simply referring to just inanimate or um, unpersonal uh, forces such as racism or war or bigotry. Because racism and war and bigotry don't in and of themselves plan 
and create schemes and methods. He's, Paul is actually referring here to a highly intellectual spirit, being, force, multiple. He's referring to what the scriptures have told us are a host, an entire host of fallen angels, which we call what? Demons? Just to give you a couple, a couple uh, passages that refer to the fallen angels who were, by the way, created as angels by God to worship God and to have communion with God, who rebelled with Satan when Satan rebelled. Jude chapter 1, or verse 1, <clears throat> talks about the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but those who left their position of authority. 1 John verse 4 speaks of some spirits which speak truth and some spirits which speak lies. And so there are angels then that help us and remind us of truth and remind us of the gospel. And there are angels who speak lies and remind us of our sin and our guilt, etc. 2 Peter 2 uh, says that God did not spare the angels when they sinned. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And just a few verses earlier, it seems to allude to the fact that there was a, uh, an entire third of the angelic host that fell or was cast down along with their captain, Lucifer, Satan, or the devil. So here, what Paul is doing is he is very vividly letting us know that this war, there, there is this war that's happening all around us. And if we ignore it, if we, if we forget it, if we, if we write it off as weird or overly religious, then this war will destroy us. When we, when we think of, of demons, I keep tripping over this thing. Um, I saw the movie Paranormal Activity with my wife. Uh, scary movie. Um, has, there, has anybody seen it? Paranormal Activity? Never? All right. Sheets sort of lifting up, doors kind of slowly opening and footprints like appearing on the floor, walls being pounded on downstairs and you're like freaking out. Listen, when we, when we think about demonic activity, we often think of those things, right? We often think like eerie, weird, um, sort of like supernatural horror kind of stuff. Or we might, we might think of the dude who blames the devil, blames everything on the devil, right? Like your TV is not working. Devil's messing with me again. Devil's playing games with me. Or you get in your car and it won't turn on. Devil's trying to get me down. The devil's, right? We blame everything on the devil. As if the devil's in your engine, like messing things up, just trying to play head games with you or gets in your TV. You can't watch CSI or whatever. You, is that show still on? I don't know. Or we think... Another, another avenue, is, uh, we think of sort of the, this is on the religious side, we think of pastors who are knocking people over to pull the demons out of them, right? So let's, let's try this. Who wants to volunteer? Um, and I would just whack you, and you would fall. Or I would get in your face and be screaming at you, like trying to, get the, trying to pull the demon out of you, like, puke or something, make, make the demon come out, right? Just kind of like really weird, 
And then everybody's like wondering, in that sort of scenario, like how do, I, how do I stay away from the devil? How do I get the demons out of my house? You know, do I need holy water? What do I do? Like, got to get away from the devil. Got to keep myself safe here from these, from these demons. Listen, for, for Paul in Ephesians, and I would say this is congruent with the entire inspired word of God, spiritual warfare is neither uh, freaky nor weird. And I would suggest this, when we think of sort of like the paranormal activity kind of ideas of demons and freaking us out, I would suggest this, the demonic world loves it nothing more when we are focused on that kind of demonic activity, when we're focused on being sort of this horror image of faucets turning on, when, when, when it, we're so concerned about that that we, we don't even realize it takes our focus. I mean, we could, we could be sitting there watching this movie and, and say, man, like, I, I hope I'm never attacked in that way. And we have no clue the demonic influences that are alive and active in our own home as we are being torn apart. As we are, as whis there are whispers in our ear that God does not love us. That we cannot trust the scriptures. That this is all just a stupid game that you're playing. They would love it nothing more, nothing more for us to be distracted from sort of the weirdness or in the weirdness of the demonic discussion so they can go to work on your souls. Now, how do we then protect ourselves from the devil? It's really not weird. It's not freaky. It's not, it's, it's not some extra biblical trick like to go out and buy some holy water or something. What we see here in the next verses, and we're just going to blow through it, Paul lays out for us the strategy to fight this battle. And it's seen in, first and foremost, in truth. So let's get into the armor. Verse 13. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So medieval warfare, think this, 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 uh, they, they would gird their loin, wrap it around their, their legs and their thighs to kind of protect their entire midsection, this belt that they would wear. Our belt in the spiritual fight is truth. Now I wonder what kind of truth Paul is referring to there is he simply referring to objective truth where we just know all the right answers where we can take sort of a spiritual Bible quiz and get a 100% is that the kind of truth that he's referring to and, and I don't think so and here's here's why number one he, he later refers to the sword of the spirit which is the Word of God so I don't think he's merely repeating himself and also I know Many individuals, I've known, let's put it in the past tense, many individuals who can score a 100% on a Bible exam, yet they are not a true person in any way. There's not truth within them. So I believe what Paul is referring to as he talks about this belt of truth is to be a true person, to not have hypocrisy, in you? Are you a person marked by truthfulness? Meaning, the person that you project uh, to others that you are is who you really are? Or is there hypocrisy in you? Now, whenever we talk about hypocrisy and authenticity, I feel like I have to tell this story, which I've told before, and um, so if you've heard it, just pretend like you haven't heard it before. When I was a youth pastor, what, what I discovered was when the discussion of hypocrisy and authenticity comes up, our first reaction, for those of you who are sitting there and you recognize that you are a hypocrite, our first reaction is to say, well, I'm not going to be a hypocrite anymore, and I'm just going to let it all hang out. 
So this is what happened. I was a youth pastor. We, were, we went through this entire series of being authentic, being real. And uh, a couple weeks into it, we, we realized that our youth who are coming to our youth group were just like angry all of a sudden. They were mean to each other. They were just speaking. They became cynical. They started to curse a lot more. Just like, all of the, like, they just, like, what's going on? Like, there just seems to be this air of, like, negativity all of a sudden. And this is as we're going through this series. So I sat down with my youth leadership team, and we were, like, trying to get to the bottom. What is it? And somebody brought up the idea, like, I think they're actually doing what we're telling them to do. We're telling them to be authentic. We're telling, telling them to be real. And so they're trying to do that. And then as we started having conversations with people, like, yo, what's going on? They're like, I'm just trying to be real. I'm just trying to be myself. Listen, we've got to understand this. When, when Paul in the scriptures confronts whether or not we are a person of truth, when Jesus confronts the hypocrites, the answer is, to, is not to just remove ourselves from hypocrisy and let all of our sin hang out. That's not actually what we're referring to. That's not what the scriptures are referring to. It's not what Jesus was getting at. If you're sitting here and you're like, man, I'm not a person of truthfulness. Like, I am projecting something that's not really me. Your answer is to not, well, let's just let the sin all hang out. The answer is repentance. The answer is to change. The answer is to recognize that you really want to be the person that you're projecting yourself to be. And you have to let God do the work within you so you can become a person of truth, of purity, of righteousness. So this first piece of armor then, this weapon that we're putting on is, is actually truthfulness, that we are people of truth, that, that truth is a quality that marks us. Secondly, look at the next, look at the next verse. having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness in medieval warfare, this section of your body needs to be protected, correct? This is pretty important. I mean, we've got the lungs, lungs, the heart. So the breastplate is a fairly important piece of equipment. Our weapon within spiritual warfare, as we're heading into this battle, as we recognize the battle raging around us, is to have a breastplate, he says, of righteousness. Now there's two kinds of righteousness in a believer's life. The one is the imputed righteousness that we receive from Jesus Christ. Meaning when God looks at us, in spite of our sin, in spite of our depravity and our brokenness, he's not looking at our sin, he's not looking at our faults, he's not looking at our problems. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ which is gifted to us. That is our imputed righteousness. And then the other kind of righteousness is the righteousness that we move toward, that we work toward, what, what you might call a moral sense of righteousness. Meaning, simply this, you do what's right, not what's wrong. So I believe that Paul here is referring to that moral kind of righteousness. As we put on this breastplate of righteousness, we're simply to be people who do what's right, not what's wrong. Now, if, if anybody has ever defeated uh, a temptation in your life, what you know is what I have found, and that is this. When, when you do what's right, it sets the enemy back. It puts him off. When you do what's right, you don't do what's wrong, the enemy gets discouraged with you. Have you how many of you have seen that in your life? I've experienced that time and time again. I mean, when, when you are so focused on like this, this thing that you want, this sin that the enemy is leading you toward and it looks so good and everything within you wants to go that direction, yet 
you choose to do what's right. So you don't, you, don't, you don't let your feelings and your flesh lead you. You choose to do what you know is right. And as much as it hurts to turn away from that, you turn away and you do what's right. What you find now is the enemy attacks you less. Some of you, however, rarely turn away from the temptation. Some of you rarely turn away from what you know is wrong and you do what's right. And what we find when we get in these kind of ruts is the enemy attacks more. It encourages the enemy to continue attacking you. And so then, what is one of the most powerful ways that we can fight the spiritual fight? It's to simply do what we know is right, not what's wrong. Breastplate of righteousness. Third thing, check it out, verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, shoes are important if you're going to be in a battle. You don't want to be running around barefoot, do you? Do you? Shoes are important. Soldiers often will sleep in their boots just in case. They're going to be ready. So the context here is a, this sense of readiness, this sense of preparation that you are ready to jump up and to go to war and to fight the moment you have to fight. And what are you ready with? What does it say? What are we prepared with? We are prepared with the gospel of peace. We are prepared with the gospel. We are prepared to speak and to preach the gospel, to step where we need to step and to move and to fight. To preach the gospel in two ways. Number one, to preach the gospel to yourself. Number two, to preach the gospel to others. Think of preaching the gospel to yourself with me for just a moment. In Psalm 42, Paul is down. He's discouraged. He's depressed. And what he does is this. In Psalm 42, his mind knows what's right. His mind knows, truth knows, that his hope and his happiness and his fulfillment is only in the Lord. It's only in God. And so then he begins to preach to himself. And he, what he says is this, Oh my soul, hope in God. Why are you so downcast? Why are you so discouraged? Oh my soul, hope in God. Like, be ready to preach the gospel to yourself. Oh my soul, you are not saved by your performance. You are saved by the performance of Christ. When the enemy begins to attack you and lie to you that God doesn't accept you because of what you've done, you preach the gospel to yourself. No, that's a lie. I am not saved because of my actions. I'm saved because of his actions. When, when the enemy begins to whisper in your ear that this creator God doesn't care for you, you preach the gospel to yourself. No, I know that because he sent his son into the world to die for my sins, that he loves me very much, that he cares for me very much, and that I have this cosmic thumbs up from the creator of the universe, when the enemy reminds you of your guilt. Tells you that you must walk with this guilt now for the rest of your life. You then preach the gospel to yourself and you say, no, oh my soul, that is why Jesus bled. He, I mean, the guilt that I'm feeling, the sin that I'm, that's why Jesus bled. That's why he went to the cross. That sin, that guilt was nailed with him on the cross. And so I don't have to be guilty. I don't have to walk with this anymore because I have Christ. I have his righteousness. Listen, nothing, nothing will, I don't think, fight harder against the enemy than preaching the gospel. Than reminding yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself, and also preaching the gospel to others. Being ready to step where you need to step. Being ready to move and to act. 
Nothing destroys the enemy's attacks more so than you passionately proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So, we put on the belt of truth. We're people of truth. We do what's right, not what's wrong. We are ready. We are prepared to preach and to speak the gospel. The fourth weapon that we have, let's look at it, verse 16. In all circumstances, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the wicked one. Now, what is the shield of faith? What do we believe? What, 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 are, we, what are we putting our faith in? What is, how does this look practically speaking? What, are these, what is this shield which is deflecting and actually extinguishing the fiery darts of our enemy? And it is simply this, having faith in the promises of God. I mean, the, the promises of God that we receive through the scriptures, guys, listen, we have to put our faith into those. And you can choose to doubt them. You can choose to doubt whether or not God said he will never leave you nor forsake you. Or you can choose to have faith in his promises. You can choose to believe that his word is true. And take confidence, put your confidence in that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, I care for the birds of the air. If I care for them, don't you think I care for you even more? Have faith. Put your faith in the promises of God. That is our shield. And then our helmet. Look at verse 17. Take, he says, the helmet of salvation. A helmet is very important, right? Amen? You've got a brain in there. You don't want to Get a spear through your head. So we, so our helmet then in this spiritual war, this, this, this thing, this weapon that protects our lives and actually, in the case of war, sustains your life, is your salvation itself. Now think about this. We believe that God, those who God has saved, He has brought them close and He will never let them go. So our life then will be sustained by what? Our salvation in and of itself. How do we know that God will not leave us, will not drop us? It's our salvation. And our salvation then becomes our helmet and it sustains our life. And then finally, number six, our sword, finish verse 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Read, study, and memorize Scripture. And that is your sword for attack. Listen, Jesus in the wilderness, what did he do? I mean, this is our example. Jesus is who we look to. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? He went there to be tempted by the devil to be tested. That's why he went to the wilderness. And as he was tested by the devil, as he was attacked spiritually, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Satan tempted him, turn this, turn this bread, in, or turn this stone into bread. Jesus threw scripture right back. No, man will not live by bread alone. As the enemy whispers, as the enemy attacks, as the enemy tries to deceive you, your response, your sword of attack is Scripture. Read, memorize, study it, and throw it back. I mean, Scripture is not just like something that we, you know, a nice thing to read in the morning or something, you know, like got my little psalm in today or got my proverb in today. We need that. And it is nice to read, but it's much more than, I mean, this is a powerful weapon right here. We have to understand that. And if we downplay scripture as a weapon, if we downplay it in our life, then it's, it's as if you are, going, you are a soldier walking into war without a sword. Probably not a good thing. So we take the sword of the Spirit. And as the enemy throws an attack at us, we throw 
Scripture right back at him. And it cuts. It destroys. It's powerful. It demolishes. And then lastly, in verse 18, praying, he says, at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Listen, praying all the time with, he says, all kinds of prayers. All sorts of prayers, like prayers of thanks, prayers of forgiveness. All the time. We've got to understand something, guys. The kind of prayer that begins with Dear Heavenly Father, and ends with, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, is one kind of prayer. That might be called, we might call that a, a, a public prayer, or we might call that an individual time of focused prayer. That's one kind of prayer. There are all kinds of prayer, and there are prayers that continue with you, prayers that you continue with every second of every minute of every day. Prayers of constant, regular communion where your mind is focused on the Lord and you are regularly communicating with Him. Prayers of thanks and moments of gratitude. Prayers of forgiveness. Prayers of repentance and moments where we fall. Prayers of supplication. Prayers of begging for the life of someone else. Prayers of begging for the salvation of someone else. Prayers of, oh God, help me, because I don't know what to do. Prayers where we ask the Spirit to help us pray because we don't know how. Prayers where, in Ephesians, it says the Spirit's at work within us. Prayers where the Spirit, God's Spirit within us, prays on our behalf because we don't even have the words to say. All kinds of prayers. We are to be people then, as we are in this war, marked by constant, continual communion with God. When someone asks how your prayer life is doing, our response ought to be, it never stops. It's continual. Like, I'm actually praying right now. <laughs> that's, how, that's our response. All kinds of prayers. Let me ask you this question. Are you ready? Are you ready for this war? As this war is raging all around us, do you realize that you're in the middle of it? Do you realize that there are intelligent forces that are fighting for your soul and for your mind to bring you captive to the things of the flesh? Are you ready? Are you prepared? And are you fighting? I resonate with uh, John Piper, who I quoted a couple weeks ago. The quote was something along the lines of, I regularly see Christians and meet with Christians who are whining about their struggles, whining about their constant sin issues, whining about their failures, whining about... And he says, rarely do I meet Christians who are going to war. Where, rarely do I meet Christians who are fighting. Are we ready to go to war this morning? Are we ready to fight? Or are we just going to whine about the problem? Are we just going to whine about the sin issues in our life, about the struggles that we have? This, is, this isn't a game. This is serious, real-life kind of stuff. I want you to see how Paul then ends this letter. Verse, verse 19, he says, And also for me, pray, talking of prayer, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am 
an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Think about this. This is the great Apostle Paul here, okay, who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and Colossians and Romans. This is the Apostle Paul who had this face-to-face interaction with Christ. He, verb- he literally heard Christ speak and he spoke back to Christ. This is the Paul who was shipwrecked and stranded and bit by a snake and left to dead all for the cause of Christ. This is the man who was gospel-saturated and gospel-driven. And here he is as he's wrapping this up and he says, and I ask that you pray for me that I may have boldness. That when I, I open my mouth, that the gospel might come out. When I open my mouth, God may give me the words to say, to fight with, and that I I may do so with boldness. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if the Apostle Paul is saying, I am in the middle of this war to some degree with trembling, and left to my flesh, I will fail. If I forget the promises, if I forget the scriptures, I'm sunk. The gospel is all I have. Christ is all I have. And I am asking you guys that you will then pray for me that I may have boldness. That I may have confidence in the gospel. If Paul's asking for that, I know I need it. I know that I, as I, as I think about the war that rages around us, I know that I need boldness. Listen. On one hand, we have to have great humility and to know how the enemy can slaughter us. And on the other hand, we have to understand and know the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. The confidence that we have in the gospel. So let me just close. I want to give you a couple marks for what I'm going to call a discipled warrior looks like. Number one, a discipled warrior is aware of the battle. Just simply aware. Like, first thing right now is I pray that God might open your eyes so that you can be aware that you are in a battle. Like, just recognize it. Just realize it. Be aware and then move to alertness. Become awake and alert and ready and prepared to fight. The second thing, we are awake of the battle and we are secondly led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Listen, Jesus said in John, eight, uh, John 18, he was being confronted by Pilate and he said, look, my, my uh, kingdom is, is not of this world. And he said, if it were, my disciples would be fighting. They would pull out swords. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of world where the, fl- the kind of sword that cuts the flesh doesn't help us in our fight. And see, if we are then moved by our flesh, if we have confidence in our flesh, if we seek to live out the gratification, the desires of our flesh, guys, we are just outside of Jesus, the kingdom of, kingdom of Christ. We are not led by the flesh, but we are led then by the Spirit who is at work within us. We are prepared to fight third thing is, and this is the final thing, we are confident in the gospel. I don't, I don't think there's anything worse than a soldier going into battle um, terrified. Ready to run. Like you, it, You will not win a war if you as a soldier are going in 
terrified. I mean, look at history. Study a couple wars. The winner is always the most confident in many ways. Not arrogant, not prideful, but they're confident in their strategy. They're confident in their, their weaponry. We have to be confident, guys. We have to be confident in the gospel. We have to know that the gospel has the power to transform our hearts. The gospel has the power to move through another individual and transform them. Listen, if it wasn't for the gospel in my own life, and in the life of many of those who are closest to me, if it wasn't for the gospel, we would not be here today. The gospel is our only hope, and we must, as we are aware of the war, and as we are pre prepared to fight the war, and as we're following the Spirit, not the flesh, we must then have confidence in the gospel. And here's the beauty of it, here's the crazy, iron, ironic beauty of it, is that the gospel itself gives you confidence in the gospel. What, I, what do I mean by that? Jesus was being crushed in the garden because he knew the battle that he was about to walk into. The battle that Jesus walked into as he took the cross and put it on his shoulder and as he fell on the way to Calvary and as someone else carried it the rest of the way and as he was nailed in and placed up on this cross and his blood was shed, the battle that he was walking into was the most cosmic, grand, eternal battle of all on which all of history swings. And it was not the beginning of the battle. Listen, it was the victory of the battle. Somebody say amen to that. Listen, Jesus, hanging on the cross, won the battle. It's already been won. And so we then, as we are going into this and as we're recognized that as as, new, as Christians, we are just thrust into the middle of this battle. We do not need to be timid. We do not need to be afraid. We need to be alert. We need to be aware. But we do not need to be afraid because the battle has already been won. We're just simply fighting. We're playing out the game. We're, we're fighting on the winning side. But the work has been done. Sin has already been eradicated. And we now have the joy and the ability to fight for the winning team. Our slavery, our chains that once kept us on the losing team are forever done away with. And we can have great confidence then in the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power, the power of God to restore you, to transform a heart, and to forever part you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. That is our confidence, and that is why we can fight. So my brothers and sisters, let's fight. Let's be alert. Let's be aware of the schemes and the methods that Satan is using currently right now in your life and in your heart. Let's embrace truth. Let's be people of truth. Let's embrace righteousness. Let's choose to do what's right, not what's wrong. Let us pray at all times, continually, in every kind of way. Let's fight. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in the good news of Jesus Christ. And God, though we, like Paul, we recognize that we are in over our heads, in and of ourselves. It is, it is that awareness, it is that recognition then that makes us love the gospel even more. God, I ask that you strengthen us this morning. Transform lives this morning. Save souls this morning. 
move people from death to life. And God, as, as we go out of this place and as we walk into, back into our homes and jobs and, and the world that we live in, as we are more aware and alert of the ongoing war around us, as we begin to notice and see the strategies and the methods of the enemy, may, us, may we, God, rely on you. May we take this armor and may we use it to fight. May we be active. May we attack the forces of darkness. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.